And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Let's take a look at some of the stories that are really all over uh, the globe that have special Catholic interests, such as Pope Francis being the first pope to visit the world's newest country, South Sudan. With me is Dr. Matthew Bunsen, executive editor and Washington bureau chief for EW10 News and a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Matthew, good to have you once again here. Thanks. Always a privilege to be with you. Okay, let's jump to it. South Sudan is different than Sudan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're really talking about is uh, the development of um, a, a country that has seen war. It has seen so many different challenges. And uh, for the Holy Father, who has dreamt of visiting uh, this has been, I think, uh, very important to him. Now, we always have to remember, too, that the uh, trips like this last year were pushed off uh, precisely because of his health issues. And this does not mean, however, that uh, the problems have gone away by any means. Yeah. And yeah. to nest this, this is, uh, I think it's a surprise to a lot of people that this is Pope Francis's 40th international journey in the 10 years that he's essentially been Pope. He has been to Africa five times and is also the 10th African country that he's visited. So there's a, a kind of priority for him. Uh, on this trip, he's been to uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo yep. and now to South Sudan. Yeah. A uh, lot of bloodshed uh, in Africa, and in particular in Sudan. Uh this uh, this is South Sudan again, a new country, right? But, yeah, so I mean, essentially created or, or born in 2011. Yeah, uh, yeah. out of the territory of uh, Sudan, uh, and it is surrounded by a variety of other countries, including Ethiopia, uh, the Central African Republic. All of these countries, uh, yeah. not to sort of generalize, but all of them have had, uh, in their own ways, in the last century, certainly in the last 50 years horrendous issues of challenges to development, uh, political strife, social strife. Uh, obviously, we look at a country like uh, Uganda, which has had severe civil strife, uh, yep. a country even like Kenya that uh, is ostensibly stable but is still nevertheless plagued by problems of militant Islamic forces. Uh, and in particular, South Sudan uh, has born essentially out of terrible strife. And in that sense, I think with 60 different ethnic groups and languages and religions, it is also the crossroads in many ways of the great struggle that is taking place across Africa uh, of a religious nature, uh, in which you now have whole elements of ISIS uh, based, having been forced out to a large degree from the Near East. They have now settled to a large degree in Northern Africa. Right. You have... Uh, Boko Haram, you have uh, the Al-Nusra Front. I mean, you have a lot of elements of radical Islam, and we need to look no further than Nigeria for that, but South Sudan has certainly been caught up in so much of that horrendous struggle as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, South Sudan still has a majority Christian population, at least in name. Um, they've got a lot of animists there, um, and I'm just wondering... It, 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 do you know what the crowds were like uh, to hear the Holy Father? Yeah, uh, they were very, very good. Okay. Uh, he arrived in Juba, uh, the, the capital, and um, 
as expected as we saw also in Congo or the Congo, um, jubilant crowds. Uh, in, for no other reason than he's the Holy Father, obviously, but there is a sense, too, that he is bringing the attention of the world to them. And yeah. that's one of the things yeah. that uh, the popes are able to do in a really important way. And I think Francis especially, uh, with his commitment to visit these, the peripheria, the peripheries, has been extremely good yeah. uh, at sort of galvanizing the world's attention, even for just a few days on the plight of refugees, on the, the call for stability, on the call for peace. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I mean, this is a his call uh, about uh, going to the peripheries is welcome. It is uh, has to be regularly reinforced because uh, the truth is most of us don't think about the peripheries. We think about what's right in front of us. So it's <laughs> it's very good to have, you know, a, a leader who, who draws our attention beyond our own comfort zone and um now go ahead well there's a dimension too to this um that uh, is worth noting and that is there's an ecumenical dimension that's right uh, and that is that um he is has been joined uh by uh, the archbishop of canterbury justin welby uh, and also the moderator for the church of scotland uh, ian greenshields uh all three committed to Again, trying to stress the importance of peace and stability uh, in what is a very young country. And um, we'll have to see how that plays out. But I think that's another way that uh, interest has been piqued, certainly in the part of the, the world's media. Yeah. yeah. Let me turn our attention back to an ongoing story here, and that is the, uh, the so-called Synod on Synodality. And yeah. the the article, or excuse me, the essay that showed up in America Magazine uh, <clears throat> by Cardinal McElroy, in which he was talking about the need for radical inclusion. And I saw that uh, uh, Father Raymond D'Souza uh, took a look at that uh, essay by McElroy and said, wow, he's basically given away the store. <laughs> we, we now know yeah. what the intention is for the Synod on Synodality. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a, a great piece at the ncregister.com. I, I think that the title in many ways says it all. He says, Cardinal McElroy's attack on church teachings on sexuality is a, quote, pastoral disaster. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think he's what he's articulating, and this is a very important point uh, to be made here, and that is he says that the jettisoning, of the distinction between orientation and activity means a couple of things. It, it suggests that there's an end of chastity as a virtue, as something to be strived for. But then there's a, an important take on this, and that is that essentially what you're saying is that the, the LGBTQ community, as they like to call themselves, is not capable of chastity, and therefore they should be the recipients of what is essentially a lesser gospel. Yeah. And I, I look at that and I think, yes, I, I understand exactly what he's saying. I mean, basically, and this can cut across the whole of our expectations. What are our expectations, not just for them, but for everyone? You know, the Holy Father stresses that uh, uh, that there's sin outside of marriage. Yes. And are we so watering down and so diminishing our expectations that we might as well just jettison the whole of the Sixth Commandment? It's it's just I don't I you know how often I've said it. I know I I speak about this off the air, 
with friends, and I know I've said it a few times on the air, men like Carl McElroy, uh, um, Hollerick, uh, Marx, all of these fellows who continue to say we have to uh, broaden the tent, make sure we're more inclusive, never tell us exactly how that's supposed to go. You right. Know, as though somehow um, those of us who hold to the historic teaching of the church on the immorality of, of sexual behavior outside of marriage, as somehow we're, we're being pharisaical about this, that we are rigid, that we are doing this just, you know, to get at those people uh, who we don't like, as though there's some secret bigotry underlying our adherence and defense of traditional morality. Um, listen, guys, I, I'll go. You tell me where you want to go, but map it out for me, because right. you're telling me to listen and discern what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church in this time regarding women's ordination, regarding chastity, um, regarding same-sex relations. I'm all for listening, but I have to tell you, I don't, I don't appreciate people like yourselves who don't appear to be listening to what the Spirit has already said in the teaching of the Church and in the Catechism and in the theology of the body. So there's something really, I think, deceptive about this, and I don't know where it ends up, but when you think that the leadership of the Synod on Synodality all seem to be buying into a, um, a redefinition or an expansion of um, acceptable, morally acceptable sexual behavior, you have to say right. this is this is going to be a this is going to be a disaster. It's going to be it's going to be uh, like nuclear weapons being released. This is going to create fallout, which they can't possibly anticipate. Well, exactly, and it's it's an untethering or an unraveling, uh, and this is why it's important to stress this. The, the fundamental reality of and of that distinction between orientation and activity specific to homosexual activity. Yeah, yeah. But but by extension, that could extend to everything uh, in terms of, course. of human sexuality, which I think is also one of the things that we're seeing with this German synodal way. But to, to pick up on something you just stressed, too, that in this piece, uh, Cardinal McElroy has this turn of phrase where that those who um, are sort of opposed to this idea of uh, this jettisoning, the distinction between orientation and activity, are somehow demonically obsessed uh, with the idea of homosexuality. And as he puts it, this animus yeah. uh, that, that seems to exist, he says. And that, that's a phrase of it's sort of the demonizing yeah. of those who are actually trying to be clear about upholding what the Church teaches out of the sincere conviction that this is actually for the betterment of the person. Right. This is right. fundamental to who we're called to be. And I always go back again to this idea of what are our expectations for people, for ourselves as sinners. Yeah. yeah. And we all are. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I think that this... I don't know. I mean, uh, Father D'Souza points out that Cardinal McElroy is, uh, quote, by far the most intelligent, articulate, and well-educated uh, Stanford, Harvard, Berkeley, the Gregorian 
of all, all the American cardinals that Pope Francis has created. Again, I stress the American cardinals that Pope Francis has created. Mm-hmm. And so people took note what he had to say. And, um, right. uh, you know, did he say, I'm wondering if, if uh, Hollerick thinks that he said too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hollerick is one thing. I, I want to be completely fair to Cardinal McElroy. Please. By reading his exact quote, he says, It is a demonic mystery of the human soul why so many men and women have a profound and visceral animus toward members of the LGBT communities. Yeah. I, so I, I, that's the exact quote. So, like, you can make of it what you will. He seems to he seems to think that we don't have same sex attracted people in our families, or that we don't have friends who are same sex attracted, or somehow <laughs> we're unfamiliar with real people here. We're just brutal judges. Albert, <laughs> we'll be right back. Uh, Doctor Matthew Bunsen, my guest. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, taking a look at some of the stories that have been uh, getting Catholic attention around the world. I think um, kind of supremely right now is Pope Francis's visit to Africa. Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, before he went there, he mentioned uh, in an interview with Nicole Winfield of the Associated Press that homosexuality is it should not be regarded as a crime. But as a sin, do you has there been any negative fallout uh, from his trip in his trip to Africa because he called for homosexuality to not be listed as a crime? Because many of the, or at least some of those countries have uh, you know severe penalties for homosexuality. Yeah. No, I think uh, well the, the, the two countries he's visited um, are very solidly Catholic. Uh, as you as you note, South Sudan is about sixty percent Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Congo, I think, is almost fifty percent Catholic. Uh, it is itself a, a very Christian country um, by its demographics today. Uh, I have not seen any uh, protests or anything like that uh, in terms of the, the Holy Father's visit there. Uh, I would, I'm assuming because. Uh, the welcome that he's received has been so intense. Yeah. But also the message that he's bringing uh, has not really dwelled on the, the types of social issues that seem to be the, the obsessive pastime of uh, secular media here, but of the simple lived reality of the horror of so much civil strife. Uh, his, his meeting, for example, with the, the survivors of the brutalities of the rapes and murders and civil war uh, in Congo yeah. was, I think, one of the most intense moments of his pontificate. It reminds me of when he listened so intently to the suffering of the Albanians uh, and recounting what they went through under the, the Marxist, atheist, communist regime of the Albanians, um, where he was putting his hands and blessing the stumps of the arms mm. of refugees. Uh, these are really powerful moments, and I, I think there are moments that have resonated, I think, with uh, the people of the, of the Congo, but I, hopefully also with the whole region, but also beyond that. Yeah. And what, what's a pity in some ways is that, there, yes, there's been a lot of secular interest. Uh, I've, I've done some secular media on this, so that that message is getting out there, but it's hard to always sort of penetrate through that fog that seems to surround uh, so much of 
coverage of trips like this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that the violence there has created a huge humanitarian crisis. Pope Francis said he was left without words after hearing the stories of violence against children in the eastern Congo. I mean, that's well, right. It's, uh, you know, and, and this Pope uh, hears a lot, so for him to be speechless is to say that he it was it was really imprinted upon him the horror that was there and yet he did always mention too that he did urge people to forgive um yes yeah said, said the cross was itself an instrument of torture and death and the most terrible in use at the time of jesus yet transformed by his love it's become a universal means of reconciliation a tree of life I mean that's that's a that's a preaching of the cross. <laughs> that's, uh, it is, yeah. yeah, and and I think it has profound meaning to those who are themselves probably still struggling to forgive, uh, let alone recover from what happened to them. Yeah. And and Francis too, as he frequently does on trips like this, um, he didn't focus as quite as much in the Congo on his concerns about uh, what he refers to as ideological colonization, but he has made reference to, uh, with that memorable phrase, hands-off Africa. And he used imagery of the Congo as a diamond. And it's a very specific one because there is, as as he put it, uh, the Congo, Africa in general, is not a mine to be stripped. Uh, And this isn't simply um, a place of natural resources to be plundered. And it's a point that he, he often returns to. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of his trip to Mozambique and to Madagascar just a few years ago, where we see the interests of global powers, China uh, in particular, uh, coming into Africa and plundering it of its natural resources and leaving behind a wake of even greater economic uh, problems, as well as political strife uh, and a sense of utter despair on the part of those who are left behind. Yeah, yeah. yeah China has been uh, through the road, uh, road Belt, Belt and Roads Initiative has been trying to yes. make, uh, but kind of cozy up to leadership in countries around the world, in Africa, even South America, and by that, getting a foothold, uh, hoping they can thereby. Uh, you know, extract natural resources or get other uh, commercial benefits uh, from the country and the continent. Um, you know, I. You know, I don't think we talked about and and tell me if this is too far gone. I don't think we talked about Cardinal Pell's funeral. Um, and I I I saw something. I saw protesters uh, in a video uh, last night. I don't know uh, how old the video was, but uh, h- how did the funeral go? Uh, very well. Um, so it, it actually drew thousands of uh, mourners uh, to what is St. Mary's Cathedral, uh, where he will be uh, entombed. And uh, it, it was, I think, an important moment as well for Australia, uh, which had seen the, the demonization of Cardinal Pell yeah. for so long. Yeah. Uh, I'm certain that there will be those victims of sexual abuse who will never be satisfied uh, by his acquittal. Uh, and I'm, I'm certain that there are many in Australian media and, and probably in some corners of Australian society that will never accept uh, that somehow he could not have been 
innocent, that, that they, they, he had to be guilty of something uh, as far as they're concerned. But we know that the, the legacy of that trial uh, is one that is it's a, a major part of his story. Uh, if you read his three volumes set on the prison journals, right. But the grace and the lessons that he learned from that, that he was then able to impart to the rest of us, uh, only added to what I think was the immense legacy. And so I derive a certain comfort from the fact that um, he was given the type of send-off in Rome and then in Sydney, uh, that person I think he really deserved. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. I, I'm glad to, to hear that, too. Uh, I, I Though I did not... He, I mean, he, what was he, 81 years old, I think? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I mean, that's not young. But <clears throat> last time I talked to him, he seemed, you know, he was all there. Uh, so I, <laughs> oh, I, th- yes. I thought he was going to be with us for a few more years, at least. Uh, well, when uh, I had a chance to interview him uh, as part of our coverage for the, the funeral of Pope Benedict, and he was on set with us, uh, it was a great interview, and even then, you could see this was still a rugby player. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. He was he was a he's a big guy, uh, strong. But I, I think Archbishop Anthony Fisher, uh, who was his successor, I think, as uh, Archbishop of Sydney, he used a, a, a phrase that he described Pell as quote a lion of the church, mm. and he proclaimed the gospel shamelessly, vehemently, and courageously to the end. But he also had a big heart, strong enough to fight for the faith and endure persecution, but soft enough to care for priests, youth, the homeless, prisoners, and imperfect Christians. Yeah. And I think that's uh, really something. Let's let's go to one of his last communiques to us, which was a critique of this whole synod on synodality business. What did he say? What was he concerned about? Well, it's the same... Uh, real concern that uh, has been uh, expressed. Uh, I, I think he referred to it as a, a toxic nightmare. Yeah. And uh, it drew quite a bit of attention and, and criticism. But I think um, what he's expressing is this idea of a divine dream uh, that has developed into this toxic nightmare despite the, the best intentions. Yeah. And he was especially concerned about the various inclusions of ideas uh, from the, the whole LGBTQ agenda mm-hmm. uh, and the lack of preaching, the lack of going forth and make disciples of all nations. Yeah. So he, uh, I think he called it something along the lines of a, a potpourri, uh, an outpouring of New Age goodwill. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Rather than a summary of Catholic faith and New Testament teaching. Yeah. And I saw Thomas Reese in a piece that he wrote recently, well, I think it was in America, where he talk, He said that he, he no longer uses the word transubstantiation to describe the Eucharist. And as he yeah. closed off that piece, he also said that he had great respect for Cardinal Pell. It was too bad that he, uh, you know, marred his reputation with this recent uh, criticism uh, on the Synod on Synodality. So it looks like uh, Father Thomas Reese is going to be an active advocate for this Synod on Synodality. Oh, no question. Um, If you read his piece, uh, it's very clear that uh, this is 
part and parcel of the very agenda that I, I would argue that Pope Francis spoke about mm-hmm. uh, in expressing his concerns about what's happening in the German synodal way. Yeah. Uh, that, as Pope Francis memorably put it, he said this is unhelpful, it is ideological, uh, and it is elitist. You know, it, it, there's something, he spends time talking about transubstantiation and how, you know, it's based on he's on Aristotelian metaphysics and it doesn't have the uh, emotional power that it did in the Middle Ages and all this. Um, you know, I've always wondered about this. Uh, and my response to that is, well, okay, uh, the, the word, we know what the word means. It tells us what the reality is uh, of the Eucharist. There are plenty of other words that are uh, can appropriately be added to help tease out the significance of the Eucharist without having to discard transubstantiation. So why, <laughs> right. why, why or, not? Or, or become bogged down in Aristotelian right. metaphysics. Exactly. Or, or to mystic metaphysics. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Why do How we... about we just do a better job of explaining it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> why why belittle the tradition when we can uh, there we can expand on it uh, without fear of jettisoning it i there's right well, weird there's also choices part of me that the, uh, he has a comment that the language of transubstantiation dependent on aristotelian metaphysics is meaningless to americans who do not learn greek philosophy in school <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, when I read that, the first thought in my head was, well, why aren't we teaching Greek philosophy in our school? This is, this is more of an indictment of the American education system than it is necessarily about the poor formation of even Catholics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm waiting to see where he comes. He says his next two essays are going to lay out his theology of the Eucharist. I'm kind of looking forward to seeing where, where he's going to go. Again, one of these right. promises, walk with me uh, as I discern a deeper meaning of the Eucharist, and at the same time denying what the Spirit has already spoken uh, to us about the Eucharist. Well, Right. Uh, well, it, it's uh, one thing, one aspect, too, um, that, that's worth noting a little bit, and that is um, that uh, in the in the early Middle Ages, he talks about that the people were told to go to confession before communion, uh, <laughs> emphasis on worshiping Jesus in the sacrament, further mm-hmm. discouraged reception. What is so compelling, I think, about uh, the medieval understanding of the Eucharist was how profound it was that they were so deeply satisfied and moved simply by seeing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it tells us the age of faith. Yeah. Indeed. Matthew, thank you once again. Great being with you. And, uh, Great to be with you as always. Yep, we'll talk soon. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, taking a look at uh, Pope Francis's visit to Africa, the ongoing conflict regarding the Synod on Synodality, and much more.